By the time we finish our time together this morning, your heart will beat about 5,000 more times. And if I'm honest with you, probably about 6,000, because we're not going to finish in the hour that we're supposed to. So maybe about 6,000 instead of 5,000. But every time your heart beats, there's valves that open and close. And uh, one of them's the aortic valve. There's three other ones that they open to allow blood to flow in one direction, but then they close back to prevent and kind of backflow, blood from flowing in the opposite direction. And uh, throughout the course of a day, uh, about 2,000 gallons of blood are going to go past those valves every single day. And those two 2,000 gallons of blood that circulate through your heart, past those valves every single day, uh, is super important. It carries essential stuff like oxygen to the rest of the body. All right? it, it takes carbon dioxide from the body and brings it to the lungs. Uh, the, those 2,000 gallons of blood carry uh, waste products so that your kidneys and your liver can filter those things out. Those 2,000 uh, gallons of blood will carry uh, essential nutrients and, and chemicals, all kinds of chemicals, all throughout the body. They'll carry um, white blood cells and antibodies to help fight infections and disease. And they'll carry all these things through the body. And one of the things that it carries is calcium, right? Now, calcium is good. Your body needs calcium. It is, it is essential. Calcium is what helps our bones become strong and make sure they're hard and that they can support us in the way that we need to be supported, right? It's also... Calcium is what builds those bones so that if you fall, you don't automatically break a bone, that it's hard enough to withstand. Right? So calcium by itself is not a problem, but calcium in the wrong place is a problem because over time what tends to happen is these calcium, this calcium that's carried by these 2,000 gallons of blood every single day, it tends to get in deposited in wrong places. Right? So instead of making it to the bones, sometimes it gets attached to arteries where there's plaque or there's cholesterol built up. And, and sometimes it even gets attached to the, little, uh, the, the valves in your heart, the aortic valve, okay? And so when it does that, it starts to attract other pieces of calcium, and they start to build up. And so this valve in your heart, the aortic valve, is usually very flexible. It's usually very, very movable. Suddenly it starts to become hard. It, in essence, becomes like a bone, right? And it doesn't just affect that valve, because what that does is it makes the rest of your heart work harder, and it starts to build up calcium. So literally, your heart is becoming physically harder, meaning that it literally becomes a bone instead of a soft muscle tissue, okay? Now, it doesn't take a rocket science. You don't have to have any kind of degree to figure out that your bones do not pump very well, okay? Their job is to support. Their job is to hold up. They do good, but they are not pumpers, okay? So if your heart becomes hard like a bone, means that it cannot do the job it was designed to do. It cannot send that 2,000 gallons of blood out through the rest of your body. And so if you reach the point where your heart and literally that, that aortic valve, that heart, literally does start to harden, there's really only two options for you. There's some treatments and things you can do to kind of slow it down, but there's really only two options. The first one is you either let it run its course and you die, or the second option is a heart valve transplant, which literally they go in, they open up your heart, and they cut out that valve, and they replace it with something new, with something different, right? So if your heart starts to harden, you have two choices, either a transplant or a death. Now, neither one of those are on the top of my list. Like, when I think of things I want to do today, neither one of those are like, yes, let's go have a heart transplant today, all right? But those are your two options. And so what doctors will tell you, what medical experts will tell you, is the best thing you can do is prevent this calcification, prevent this hardening from happening in the first place. If you can take steps now to prevent this from happening, this, this buildup, you can stop this from happening in the future. And so one of the things they'll tell you to do is to prevent rheumatic fever. Right? Now, rheumatic fever is something that happens mainly with children and young adults. Strep throat that doesn't become treated uh, can turn into rheumatic fever. 
So there's this connection between that and aortic stenosis later in life. And, uh, probably one of the most common things they'll tell you to do is to have a healthy diet, to exercise throughout the week, and to really to keep your blood pressure and your cholesterol levels under control. And so when you do these things, you will stop the hardening process from the very beginning. So there's preventative measures that you can take to prevent this hardening of your heart. Right? As we look in Hebrews chapter 3 this morning, we're going to start in verse 7. Uh, there's this extreme warning you're going to hear, and you're going to hear it several times throughout this passage. And it's simply this, don't let your heart become hardened. Don't harden your heart. And so to do that, he's going to give us the preventive measures so that we don't have to have a transplant or we don't have to face death prematurely, right? And spiritually speaking, and we're going to look at this and we're going to say, what is it that we can do now to prevent this problem from happening in our spiritual life? So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me uh, to Hebrews chapter 3. And we're going to read in verse 7, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. And really, uh, I want to share with you this morning that this message is really focused on all of those, um, some of you sitting here, some of you watching online, this message is really for all of you who are just right on the cusp of making some commitment to Christ, right? Making some, some step forward um, in, in this plan that God has for your life. And so I want you to hear the words that the writer of Hebrews says in, in chapter 3, starting in verse 7. And again, reading through verse 19. In verse 7, he says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit said, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart, as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me and tried me, and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation, and said, They always go astray in their hearts, and they, or excuse me, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. Verse 12, watch out, brothers, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that departs from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it is still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. For you, for, excuse me, for we have been companions of the Messiah if we hold firmly until the end the realities that we have had at the start. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. For who heard and rebelled? Wasn't it really all who came out of Egypt under Moses? And who was it that he provoked, or excuse me, that was was he provoked with for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And who did he swear that they would not enter his rest, if not those who disobeyed? Verse nineteen. So, you see, that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Let's pray together. God, this morning. I am praying that we will not harden our hearts to you. God, that we will open our hearts. That we will allow them to be softened to you this morning. God, I am fully aware that this message is going to meet people in very different places. Because where we are at in our commitment and our walk with you in this room and online is very different in this moment. And so God, I am praying that you will speak so loudly and so clearly that we with boldness and confidence will take that step, whatever that next step in our faith journey is, whatever that step of commitment and belief is, God, today I pray that we don't harden it anymore. 
I pray that we don't hold it back anymore. That today be the day that we jump and we step and we take that leap of faith. Whatever that looks like for us as individuals. Whatever it is in your plan that you have for us. God, I pray that today you speak so loudly and clearly, God, that we with boldness take that step. God, today let us not harden our hearts, but let us be open to the message that you have for us. To speak words of truth and to speak words of life and speak words of wisdom to our hearts this morning. God, so that our heart is forever changed and inclined to you, Father. So God, I pray that you speak. And I pray that with all openness that we are ready to listen. But above all else, God, I pray that we are ready to take that step of faith. So God, speak. Let us listen. And let us boldly move in the direction that you have for us this morning, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. George Santias is a philosopher, an essayist, a poet, and a novelist that lived from 1863 to 1952. And his background is pretty interesting. He graduated from Harvard University um, with his undergraduate degree. And then he went two years uh, to, um, to Berlin to study at a university there. And then he came back to work on his Ph.D. at Harvard University. And as soon as he finished his degree at Harvard University, they immediately hired him as a professor, right? That doesn't normally happen. You don't immediately get one degree and all of a sudden you're a professor at the school. And so during his lifetime... Excuse me, he taught at Harvard for about 13 years, then he moved back to Europe to focus on his writing. And during his lifetime, he wrote over 30 different books in a number of different subjects. Philosophy was his main one. He loved the the subject of philosophy. He wrote on government and government systems. And uh, most people described him as an atheist. He describes himself as an aesthetic Catholic, right? Now, you may not have any idea what an aesthetic Catholic is. I didn't know what it was either, so I had to look it up, all right? An aesthetic Catholic is someone who likes the look and the beauty of the traditions of the Catholic faith. Okay, So they like the look of the Catholic faith. They like the traditions of the Catholic faith. They just don't like the faith part of the Catholic faith. Right? So they're all good with what it looks like and the traditions and hold on to that. But if you could just leave the God out of it, they're all right with that. So they just like the beauty and the structure and all that, but they don't like the God part of it. That's how he describes as an aesthetic Catholic, right? So somehow this qualified him. He wrote four books on religion, right? And I'm going to be totally honest with you. I've never read any of them, right? And given his description of his own personal faith, I'm going to say I'm not going to read any of them and probably shouldn't waste your time reading any of them either, okay? I don't know of anything he he wrote in any of those books that would be worth our time and energy spending time on any time in our life, right? But there is one thing that he wrote, not in those books on religion, but actually one of his philosophy books on life, that is worth repeating and worth remembering. In fact, it's so valuable that it's inscribed on a plaque on a Veterans Memorial Park in Texas. It's also inscribed in both Polish and English in a plaque or on a plaque on the Auschwitz concentration camp, right? And here it is. This is actually a picture of that plaque. It is a very simple plaque in the Auschwitz concentration camp and in, in Poland on top, which I'm not going to try, um, in English on the bottom is this very simple phrase. The one who does not remember history is bound to live through it again. Now, you may have heard that paraphrase slightly different. You may have heard it, the one who doesn't learn from history is doomed to repeat it. It was what the, the translation in Texas says. It's also the translation that Winston Churchill uh, announced when he was speaking to the House of Commons in England in 1948. And so there's this idea that and they put this sign in Auschwitz. It's this very simple yet extremely important reminder that what happened in this place, 
The atrocities that happened where Jews and an entire generation and millions of people were wiped out and held in like prisoners and held almost like in animal conditions, that all of the atrocities that happened here, they can all happen again if we don't remember what happened here. Now, I can tell you, I haven't been to Altrich, but I've been to a concentration camp in Germany, and I can tell you that just walking on the grounds is a very surreal feeling. That when you walk on the grounds, and there are signs like this there as well, that, that you are called to remember what happened. And there are lots of folks that say, why don't you just plow that up? I mean, there's buildings all around it. It's a huge metropolis here. Why don't you just get rid of that? That's such a painful reminder of things that happened a long time ago. Why don't we just wipe that out? And the people that have lived in that area, and the Jews in that time, and the German government has said, no, we will never wipe these things out. We will never get rid of this because if we forget this, this place, if we forget what happened in these moments, then we'll relive these moments again. And so that's the reason they put this sign there, is that if we don't learn the lessons of the past, then we are doomed to repeat the same mistakes that the generations before us have done over and over again. See, the writer of Hebrews makes this same point in the first part of the text that we read this morning, that we need to learn the lessons of the past. That If we don't, we're going to do like the people of Israel, and we're going to repeat the same mistakes and the same failures over and over and over. And literally, history is going to repeat itself right before our very eyes, and we're going to have to relive the mistakes that other people have made before us. Now, before we jump into this passage, I want to kind of remind you of the bigger context that we're talking about, right? The whole book of Hebrews, and we've talked about this for weeks now, is designed with one argument in mind, that Jesus is superior, the gospel is superior and supreme to everything else, right? And so in chapters 1 and 2, he sets out that Jesus is greater than the angels. So everybody thinks angels are awesome, they're wonderful, everybody loves angels until they show up, and then you're terrified of them, but Jesus is greater than all of that, right? And then in chapter 3, he switches gears, and he starts talking about Moses, and last week we talked about how Jesus is more than Moses, right? And the reason he picks Moses is because Moses, for the Hebrew people, for the Jewish people, he was their spiritual leader, their their physical leader for about 1,500 years. From the time he wrote the first five books of the Bible, everything he wrote dictated your life, right? How far you could walk on a Sunday, how much you could eat on a Monday, whether you took a bath on a Tuesday, right? All the stuff that you normally do was dictated by what Moses wrote in those first five books of the Bible, right? And so they look to him. And so if you're going to convince people that Jesus is more than anybody, is greater than anybody, you start at the very top. So in chapter 3, he starts with talking about Jesus being more and greater than anything, and specifically Moses. And he continues that argument in this last part of chapter 3, and he's going to give you this illustration. Let me show you why Jesus is greater than Moses, because he did something that Moses cannot do. And he does it by giving you this event from the past. And so really he starts this event and he introduces it in verse 7. This illustration from the past that Moses had to live through. And so in verse 7 he starts off, he says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, which is a very powerful introduction. I want you to notice who he gives credit to for writing this. The Holy Spirit. This is God himself speaking to you and to me. So understand that. We'll talk about why that's important in just a moment. But then he goes on in verse 8. And honestly, verse 8 through verse 11 um, have really odd verse breakups. Okay, And by that I mean that like the the verse 10 that we'll look at in a minute, it doesn't really start in the sentence. It starts kind of at a very odd point. Okay, And so there's a reason for that. And let me share that with you for some of you. Um, Those numbers for verses 
were not in the original. Right? So the writer of Hebrews didn't number 9, 10, 11, and 12. Those didn't come to about 1,300 years after the book of Hebrews was written. Right? And the joke is the guy that did it was actually doing it for his students. Because I want you to imagine if I told you, all right, let's get your Bibles out, let's turn to the book of Hebrews, and I just started reading without telling you a chapter or a verse. And you would just have to either know where it was or you'd have to start reading the beginning and get all the way to chapter 3. Okay? Now, that's going to work in chapter 3. When we get to chapter 12, that's, you're going to have to catch up a lot. Okay? So a guy was teaching his students, and he broke the Bible up into chapters and verses. And the joke is that he was riding from one town to another, and he was doing this, and he was riding his horse. And if you've ever ridden a horse, you know it's not a smooth, even ride. So he maybe like, went to put the tin somewhere else, but his horse jumped, and he, he slid it down here. All right? So that's just a joke. It, it really didn't happen that way. But it's a very odd breakup. I'm telling you all that because we're going to read verses 9 through 11, and normally we break them up one by one by one, but we're going to read this as a chunk. Because the verse structure of it is really odd. You've got verse 10 starting in the very middle of a sentence. And if you stop there, it's kind of an odd flow. All right, so let's read together verse 8 all the way through verse 11. I know we just read it, but let's do it again. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore... I was provoked with the generation and says they always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my anger they will not enter my rest. Now some background is very helpful for us in understanding this passage. We actually sang some of the background, a little bit of this earlier. The fact that the people of Egypt had enslaved the Israelites. They had held them captive for 400 years. And finally, Moses shows up on the scene, and God works and orchestrates all this. Moses shows up on the scene, and he says, All right, it's time that we free ourselves, that we get out from under the bonds of slavery. We've been slaves long enough. We've been held captive long enough. We've been oppressed long enough. It's time that we become our own people and our own nation. And so Moses shows up on the scene. He walks into the palace of Pharaoh, and he says, Listen, these million and a half slaves you've got, we're walking out of here. And Pharaoh's like, mm, Yeah, I don't really think so. I'm kind of all about this free labor and the fact that you're building my pyramids. And I, you guys are going to hang out here for a while. And Moses said, no, no, listen, we're out. We're done. He's like, ah, whatever. And then he sends 12 plagues or 10 plagues. God sends 10 plagues through Egypt to convince him. They're, they're, the whole river, everything in all the water in Egypt turns into blood. There's frogs everywhere. There's flies everywhere. There, there's, there's locusts that eats everything. There's hail that falls from heaven. All of this happens. And the people of Israel are saved from every bit of it. They get to just sit in their, their little community. And they watch the rest of Egypt be destroyed by these plagues. And the last one is the death of the firstborn. The angel comes through and he kills the firstborn of every man, woman, or animal of the, Egypt, of the Egyptian nation. And the people of Israel are saved from all of it. They just sit and watch. And that's when Pharaoh said, that's fine. We've had enough. You guys get out of here. Apparently your God is bigger than I gave him credit for. So please, go. Get out of here. And get out of here as quick as you can. And so the Israelite people packed up their stuff. And they watched all this destruction. They take off and they start their journey. And as they're on their journey, they start to come to the edge of the Red Sea. And they're like, hey, we've got this. And they turn around and realize that the Egyptian army has come behind them because Pharaoh's changed his mind. Suddenly he wants his slaves back. 
And so now these group of a million and a half people who are not soldiers, not trained in any kind of combat, they're farmers, they're, they've been servants for years, suddenly they're facing the, the hardest, most advanced, biggest army in the world is coming after them. And it's between, they are, they are backed against the sea, and the, the Egyptians are coming at them, and they're faced with this situation, and they start to cry out to Moses, and they say, Moses, why did you bring us here? We could have just stayed in Egypt and we could have just worked there for the rest of our life. Why did you bring us here to get us killed out here? They could have done it back there just as good. And God said, no, no, let me show you the plan. And so he says, Moses, go to the edge of the sea. And Moses goes to the edge of the sea and he raises up his staff. And the sea literally splits open. These a million and a half people walk through what used to be a sea on dry ground. They don't even get their feet muddy. They walk all the way through it. And then the Egyptians say, hey, look, we can do that too. And so they start through this, this passage of water only to have the whole ocean or the whole sea close in on them. And again, what happens? The Israelites watch. As God does something completely amazing and destroys the most powerful, advanced army in the world at the time. And they are standing on the other side of the shore, scot free. No one chasing them at all. And then they start to move through the desert. And suddenly they get to a place where there's not any water. And they start to cry out to the Moses. And they're like, Moses, why don't you bring us out here? This is a terrible place. This is a horrible place to be. There's no water out here. We're all going to thirst to death. And God says, no, I'm going to see you through this. And Moses, go strike that rock over there. So Moses goes and he hits a rock and water starts gushing out of it. And they have water to feed all of them or to, to, to give all of them what they need to drink. And they go on a little further and they start to run out of food. And they're like, Moses, why did you bring us out here? This is a terrible place. Now, yeah, we've got water, but now we're all going to starve to death. And God says, no, I've got a plan for you. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, there's going to be like cornflakes laying everywhere, manna from heaven. There's going to be bread laying all over the ground. All you have to do is go pick it up. And then you have to gather it up. Gather up all you need for today and don't worry about tomorrow. Just gather up what you need for today because tomorrow it's going to happen again. And the next day it's going to happen again. And the next day it's going to happen again. And so they do that. And they, they, they get all the bread they need for today and they hold it and everything they need. And then they start to cry out, Moses, this is, these cornflakes are getting old. It's getting terrible. We've got water, but now we've got cornflakes. Why didn't you just leave us in Egypt? At least we had sheep and stuff we can eat there. And God says, no, let me give you a bigger part of the plan. Tomorrow there'll be quail. And so you just have to go out there and get the quail. Now, I don't know if they had to like, capture the quail or the quail just like were there. I don't know. I don't, we don't get that part of the story. But every time they complain, God says, let me show you the big picture. Let me show you that I can meet every need that you have. Let me show you that I gave you a promise when you left Egypt that there was a place that I was going to send you to and all your needs were going to be met. Everything that you were looking for was going to be satisfied in that place. And so they've traveled around, and every time they've come to a place where they've complained, they've come to a place where they've argued, and they said, Moses, we have been better off in Egypt. God says, no, let me show you how faithful I am to the promise I made you. And so we come all the way to the end of the story, or what should be the end of the story. They are right on the edge of the land that Moses had promised that he was leading them to. They are right on the edge. They are there to the point where they're getting ready to enter this land that God had promised them for hundreds of years. This is the promised land. It is flowing with milk and honey. Every need you have is going to be met in this place. You're not going to be a slave. You're not going to have to struggle. You're not going to have to worry about food or water. None of that. It's all in this land. And they are right on the edge of it. They are just ready to go into this land. And so Moses, being the military leader he is, he decides, sorry, he decides to send 12 spies into that land just for kind of military strategy. How are we going to go in and take this land? Because that land is occupied by people. 
And so these 12 spies, they go in, they look at all the land, they look at all there is, and they come back and, and they say, oh, it is awesome. The grapes are huge. It is massive. In fact, it takes two men to carry one bundle of grapes. It is a beautiful, massive, wonderful land, and it is awesome, but we're not going in there. Why not? Because the people there are giants. We are literally like grasshoppers compared to them, is what they say. Ten of the twelve spies come back with this report. It is great. It is awesome. It is everything God told us it was going to be, but we're not doing it. Because the people there are huge and massive and mighty, and we're, we're just not doing it. We're not going to do it. And two of those spies came back and said, are you kidding me? Do you not remember the Red Sea? We couldn't do that either, and God did it. We couldn't get water from the rock, but God did it. Do you guys not remember the, the bread that we've been eating, the quail we've been eating? Do you remember that God did all of that stuff? And if He brought us this far, do you really think He's going to leave us here? No. Let's go. Let's go do it. And to me and Joshua and Caleb said, we got this. Actually, we don't, but God does. And I don't care how big those giants are. My God is bigger than those giants. And so what happens? Majority rules. And those ten people convince the rest of the million and a half people, like, no, we ain't doing this. We're going to come right up to the edge. And you know what? This is good enough. We're fine right here, just right here on the very edge. And then they start to grumble and complain even more because, you know what? Maybe, maybe why do we even come this far? Maybe Egypt really wasn't as bad as we thought it was. Moses, why did you bring us out here in the first place? And I want you to understand they were so close, right on the very cusp of everything that was promised to them, right on the very cusp of everything they ever wanted. And all they had to do was just trust God would get them to where He promised they would. But they don't do it. You see, that's what He's talking about. That's the day of rebellion. That's the day that they said, God, you are not big enough. God, you are not faithful enough. God, yeah, you've done all this great stuff, but we don't trust you to do what you said you were going to do. God, we don't see that we can do this, and we don't think you're going to do it for us either. This is the day of rebellion. This is the day that they say we were better off in Egypt. This is the day they're on the very edge of promise, and this is the day they reject God completely because God's not going to come through for them. They don't see what's going to happen. They reject God, and they reject His plan, and ultimately what they're doing, they're not just rejecting a land, they're not just rejecting a nation. What they're really doing is looking Looking God straight in the face and God, you are a liar. You promised us this, but you've lied to us because those giants are huge and we're not. That's the day of rebellion. That's the day that they rebelled against God and they fought against God and they resisted God and they resisted all, not just a place, but all that God had promised them because they thought they had a better plan and a better idea than God did. And so if you remember in verse 10 and verse 11, it gives you God's response to how they, they failed and how they convinced God, or how they said that God was a liar. In verse 10, it says, God responded, I was provoked. It means that I was angry. I was disgusted with them. It literally means that I spewed them out. It made him want to vomit them out. And so I want you to see what happens. They are right here. This, if this is the promised land, they are right here, right on the very edge. And yet they say, no, nah, we're good right here. And God says, no, 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 you don't get that option. You either go in or you don't. And they said, no, we're not going in. We, God, we don't trust you in there. We trust you to here, and this is great. We'll just stay here, but we don't trust you there. And God says, no, that's fine. If you don't trust me there, then you get to wander around in the desert for 40 years. 
And so understand the 40 years of wandering happens after that day of rebellion. The 40 years is literally by and time. These, these men, women, and children are literally just walking around in a huge circle. They're not lost. It's literally just by and time for them. Because what they're doing is they're dying off one by one by one. In verse 11, there's a new promise that's given. See, instead of this promise of this generation going into the great promised land, this wonderful land flowing of milk and honey, there's this new promise in verse 11. You don't get in. You don't trust me, and you're not committed to me, and you're not faithful to me. You don't get in. The promise is they will not enter my rest. You see, nobody from that generation except those two spies, Joshua and Caleb, the two that came back with a good report, said, yeah, we can do this. None of the rest of them are getting in. Everybody else that's old enough to make that decision on their own, they all die in the wilderness. Even Moses himself doesn't make it into the promised land. He sees it. He climbs the mountain. He gets to look over into it. But he doesn't get to go in itself. He doesn't get to see it to be in that land either. None of them do. Right on the cusp. Right on the edge of the promise. Everything is right in front of them. And all they have to do is just see all that God has done. Learn from all that God has done. Walk and continue to walk in the faithfulness of God. And they don't do it. And they rebel. But what's interesting about this passage and the writer of Hebrews, and the way he structures this passage, is, if, is that he doesn't tell you Moses' version of the story. You see, what's amazing about the story is in verse 7, when it says, the Holy Spirit said this. Notice he didn't say Moses wrote this. Moses tells you all this account. You can go back and read the book of Numbers. He tells you all about it. He tells about it in Deuteronomy. He tells you this is what happened. But he doesn't quote any of that. Instead, he quotes Psalm 95, which Psalm 95 was written by David. Right? David is 500 years later than Moses. He's the, the religious, spiritual, and military leader of the people of Israel. He's the greatest king that Israel ever had. And 500 years after Moses, guess what he's telling his people? Don't harden your heart like they did in the past generation. Don't rebel against God. We are right on the cusp of what God has promised us. We are right on the edge of all that God has promised us. And David is looking at his people 500 years after Moses, and he's telling them the exact same thing. Don't stop believing now. Don't falter on your commitment to God now. If God has been faithful to everything He's ever said, why do you think He's not going to be faithful to the next step that He's taken? And so 500 years after Moses, David is telling his people the exact same thing. Don't harden your hearts today. I want you to fast forward because a thousand years after that, we have the writer of Hebrews telling this generation the exact same thing. Today, don't harden your hearts. Why do you think this theme is repeated both in Numbers and in Psalms and all the way in the book of Hebrews? It's because we didn't learn the lessons of the past. And what he's telling you over and over and over is, why don't you look at your past and see that all that God has done and all the faithfulness that God has done, everything that God has ever promised you is everything has ever promised you. It's always come true. And now you're at this moment. And why do you think it's not going to be true going forward? Where you're right here on the edge and everything he's proven, everything has been faithful. And why do you think he's not going to be faithful in the very next step of your commitment? Why is it you came to here and now you're questioning him? Learn the lessons of the past because what you see is that it cost that generation 40 years of wondering and they never got to go in the promised land they thought they were going to get to. David is telling his people 500 years later, don't 
harden your heart. Don't fall into this idea of rebellion. And the writer of Hebrews is telling us the same thing. Don't come to the edge of faith and walk away from it. Don't come all this way and all this plan that God has for you. Don't come to the edge of believing and fully trusting, giving yourself to the plan of salvation of Christ, and then stop short. Learn the lessons of the past and don't repeat those mistakes that people made. You see, the reason that so many people come to the edge and then walk away is because they don't realize the danger of walking away. They don't realize the danger of the disbelief. I read a, a kind of an interesting, almost kind of a fun article this week about some park rangers in Yellowstone National Park. And they tell you that their job is made super complicated, not by the park, but by the people that come to visit the park. Right? The people make their job a whole lot harder than it has to be. And so in this article, they gave two examples of it. They said, for one, uh, the, the snow had come through part of the park, and so it, it kind of really covered this area. And so one of the roads was really impassable. They didn't have time to clear it. And so they did what they were supposed to do. They got up early, and they went and they blockaded the road. They put the big no, no trespassing signs, road closed, barricades. They put all these signs up blocking the entrance to the road so that nobody would turn down that road. Because if you got on that road, there was a good chance you were not going to make it off that road, that you were going to get stuck. Right? So they, they put all these signs out and all these warning signs. Don't go this way. Road closed. This is, this is not happening. Only to be called out a few hours later because a couple had gotten stuck on that road that was closed. And so they went out there because they're good park rangers. And they go out there and they're like, well, can we ask you a question? Why, why are you here? And they're like, well, because we were following our GPS. And our GPS said, turn right. And the park ranger said, well, yes, but... When you got ready to turn right, did you not see those big barricades that said, road closed, do not enter? And they said, well, yeah, we saw them. We just didn't believe they were true. We didn't really think the road was closed, so we just drove around them because our GPS told us to. You see, so many of us are listening to a voice around us versus the sign that is right in front of us. See, oddly enough, those same park rangers got a call that exact same day after going to have to rescue the people who were stranded and stuck on the road they shouldn't have been on. They got a call for medical attention right near Old Faithful. And the medical attention was simply this, that a lady had been headbutted by a bison. Now, I don't know, that sounds like a cool call to me. Like, I kind of want to go on that one. So they have to go and respond to this lady who's now in a medical emergency because she got headbutted by a bison. And, and, and so they get, to this, they get there, and the bison are still there. And the lady is laid out cold there because you don't win when you headbutt a bison, I'm just going to tell you. So what happened was that she had parked her car, and she literally walked past a sign that said, Do not approach wild animals. Literally walked right past it. To go from her car to where she was laying, she had to literally walk past the sign, almost around the sign, to get to where she was laying almost lifeless at that point. She was still alive. She was just out cold. right? And so the, the park rangers get there, and they have, to, they have to get to this lady. So they have to move the bison uh, along. They have to shoo them away so they can get the emergency responders into this lady. And so they get there, and, and they begin to talk, not to the lady because she's still out cold, but they begin to talk to her friend, and, and they're like, Why, what happened? And they said, well, she wanted to take a picture. And they said, well, you know, you can do that from back here. The bison's pretty big. Like, it's not like a flea that you got to get close. You take pictures from back here. And they said, yeah, but she really wanted to take like a, an up-close picture, like a selfie with a bison. It sounds like a great idea, right? And so yes, you can imagine as she got there and she got ready to take her selfie with the bison, the bison wasn't meaning to. He wasn't trying to be malicious or whatever. He just swung his head around to see what was going on. And when he did, he literally knocked the woman out and about 10 feet 
from where she was standing. That's what happens when you headbutt a bison. But that's also what happens when you don't heed the warning that says, do not approach wildlife. And so these park rangers would tell you their job is made extremely complicated, not because the wildlife, they don't have any problem. The bison do exactly what they're supposed to do. The snow does exactly what it's supposed to do. The problem is that the people are not doing what they're supposed to do. The problem is not the warnings. No amount of signs. They, they keep putting up more signs. And they said, it doesn't matter how many signs we put up, we still have these problems. You see, the problem is not the situation. The problem is the disbelief that the danger is there. The problem is that people don't believe the warning signs. The problem is simply that people don't believe the danger is real, that they don't believe that they can get hurt or even killed by ignoring these warning signs. Their disbelief in what we tell them is the problem. And that's the point the writer of Hebrews is telling us here, that there is a danger when we come to a point of disbelief. Because disbelief is unlike any other sin that we commit in Scripture. It's unlike any other sin that we go through in our lives. And when we disbelieve, when we choose not to trust and believe in God, it causes a major problem unlike any other sin. Don't you see what he says in verse 12? He says, watch out, brothers, so that there won't be any of you, or there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that departs from the living God. I want you to notice how he describes an unbelieving heart. He uses two phrases, or one word and one phrase. The first one, he describes it as evil. An unbelieving heart is evil. It is intent on wickedness. Right? Another way to, to that word can be translated, and it's a beautiful picture here. It is, it is uh, diseased, it is callous, it is intended on wickedness, but I love this one. It is full of labor and hardship. So once you understand what an unbelieving heart is doing, an unbelieving heart is one who doesn't trust God's plan. It doesn't trust all that God has done. It doesn't trust that God has all this worked out and salvation is really through the blood of Jesus Christ and we don't have to work for it and earn it. And so an unbelieving heart is full of labor and hardship because it's always trying to come up with a better plan than God's plan. And that is evil. He describes it as heartache. Is pain. It is evil. An unbelieving heart is evil. But he also says an unbelieving heart is one who departs from the living God. It turns from God. It rebels against God. It literally fights against God. It says, I don't want anything to do with you. That yes, I've trusted you. I've been all the way. And all of a sudden now, I don't want you anymore. That's what an unbelieving heart says. That you have nothing for me. So I want you to see what he says, the results of having an unbelieving heart. In verse 19, he says, So we see that they were unable to enter, unable to enter the rest, unable to enter the presence because of unbelief. Charles Spurgeon once wrote that the great sin of not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is often spoken in very light and very trifle spirit, as though it scarcely is any sin at all. You see, when we talk to someone about belief, when we, we kind of think that this idea that people are just free to believe whatever they want to. Sadly enough, a number of you sitting here and a number of Christians believe that you can believe whatever you want to. You're going to end up in the exact same place that all the rest of us are. That's not the words of Scripture. That you can believe any faith, that every faith, every religion is going to bring you to the exact same God. It's not true. That every unbelief is evil and every unbelief departs from the living God, which means you turn your back on God. You see, we come to this place at the end of people's lives and we start talking about things that really at the end of their life don't matter at all. We talk about they were really a good person. Yeah, they're not really a Christian kind of person. They're not really a church-going kind of person. They don't really believe in Jesus or God, but they're really a good person. 
And then we start trying to justify why they're a good person because they did this, because they love their children, because they were this, because they did this, they, they did these things. Do you understand that none of that matters because the condition of the heart is what God judges. And the condition of an unbelieving heart is evil and departed from Him. So let me be clear that throughout Scripture it is so clear. There is no such thing as a good unbelieving heart. The Scripture is clear that if you choose not to believe, then, then you choose not to be good. Then you choose to depart from God. You choose not to believe. You choose not to be with Him. You choose not to enter His rest. You don't get to not believe and then suddenly shine up at the pearly gates and say, alright, I'm ready to enter. No, you don't do that. Because you wanted not to be there. You see, there's this choice. And what separates you from God for all eternity is not the number of sins that you commit. Right? There's not this balance scale of did you do more good than you do bad. Right? Are your sins outweighed by your good? That's not the way it works. You don't separate from God for eternity because you committed a certain number of sins. You don't even separate from God because you committed a certain sin that we would think was really bad. Right? And so let me shock you for just a moment. The worst serial killer in the world, whoever you may think that may be, they stand just as much chance of getting into God's rest as you and I do because their murders, their rapes, none of that stuff separate them from God for eternity. You know what the one thing that does? Them rejecting God. It is their unbelief. The reason that the people didn't get into the promised land, even though they're right on the very cusp of it, is not because they, they, didn't tr- not because they, they committed sins, they, they did things they shouldn't have. It's simply because they didn't believe God would get them there. They didn't trust Him to get Him there. And so the danger of unbelief is not something we should take lightly. The danger is if you choose not to believe, there is no hope for you. There is not salvation for you. All the good in the world that you do will never outweigh this one thing that you chose not to follow through with. All roads do not lead to heaven. In fact, there is one road that leads to heaven. All other roads lead away from God. All other roads lead in different directions. All other roads depart from the living God. And so he's telling you in verse 12, the the warning is so clear. Watch out. Be on guard that none of this is within you. That none of you have an evil, unbelieving heart. I want you to notice something else about that verse. And it leads us to the next point. That when we speak of that verse, it's not just a warning for me as an individual. It is a warning for all of us within community. You see, the you that he talks about. Watch out so that you, right? That is plural. It's not just Michael Rakes, watch out for Michael Rakes. It is Michael Rakes, watch out so that all of us, in the plural sense, the danger of disbelief is not just for myself, but it's for the whole community that is around us. You see, if, if you've ever watched nature shows where uh, there's a lion or a, a cheetah or something that's trying to hunt down a, a herd of animals, right? I mean, maybe you've seen these shows. I used to love to watch these shows as a kid, and I still like them. But if you've ever noticed that when the lion or the predator is going to attack a herd animal, right, their first job is not the onset of attack. They're not looking to jump on the back of a baby elephant or a zebra or whatever it is they're fighting. Right? Or they're not looking to jump on the back of that thing first. Why? Because they know that's dangerous. You know what their first instinct is to do? Isolate and separate. Right? We want the rest of the herd to go this way, and we want this one little animal to go this way. Why? Because when we get this animal off by himself, we only got four hooves to worry about instead of thousands of hooves that are going to get us. We only have one bison that's going to headbutt us versus thousands that are going to headbutt us over here. 
So what our job is, is as predators, is we're going to separate this one. We're going to isolate this one. We're going to get this one off by himself, and then we're going to jump on his back. Then we're going to take it down. Why? Because it's much easier to take this down by itself than it is when it's surrounded by all these other groups. Can I share with you, there's a reason that in 1 Peter 5, 8, God says that the devil the, is the adversary, roars like a lion, seeking to devour he prowls around. There's a reason he compares it, because he uses the exact same tactic. You see, one of the first things that Satan does, one of the first things that sin does, is not look to attack. It looks to isolate and to separate from community. And so that's the reason that we know there's great strength in numbers, but there's great danger in isolation. So not only do we, do we know the dangers of disbelief, but in verse 13, we call out to community. I want you to see what he says in verse 13, he says, But encourage each other daily. So while it is still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. I love this word. It calls encourage or exhort maybe in, in a different translation. But it literally means to call to one side, to call someone near. It means they are far away and you call them so they come and stand right beside you. And I want you to notice what he says. Do this daily. What you're really doing, what he's encouraging us to do, is to invite someone to walk this Christian walk with you so that you're surrounded by other believers. Right? So understand this. Let me think, think about this for a moment. The moment that you face the greatest temptation, where were your Christian friends? Take it a step further. The moment that you fail and you gave in to temptation and you sinned, where were your Christian friends and your Christian allies? Were they right around you? Were they right next to you? Or did you find yourself off walking by yourself one day and that's when you fail? That's when temptation hits you too hard. My guess is that that's the situation. That when we become isolated, when we don't see the value in what we are doing right now, when we don't see the value in community, when we don't see the value in worshiping together and singing together and exalting God together, when we don't see the value of breaking our bread together and opening our Bibles together, when we don't see the value of friendships and community, when we don't see the value of strength in numbers, we are isolated and we are on our own and we are vulnerable to sin's deception at that time. And so what he's telling you very clearly is call out for community. And it's much easier to resist temptation when you have an accountability, when you invited somebody to walk into your daily life, into your daily struggles, when you realize that you don't have to walk the Christian life all alone. When you call out to community, it protects your heart from sin's deception. When you call out to community, it protects your heart from becoming hard, which is the goal in the first place. You're encouraged when you call out and you call someone to your side. The Christian walk was never meant for you to do by yourself. It was always meant for you to do in community with other believers. So to prevent your heart from being hardened by sin, call out to them. Surround yourselves by this community. But there's one final measure that we take to prevent this hardening of our heart. You see, we focus on the finish line. We've learned the lessons of the past. We know the dangers of disbelief. We call out to the community. And now it's time to look at what's ahead of us and focus on what lies ahead. Verse 14 is a beautiful passage. It's a little confusing, but it's a beautiful passage. It says this, for we have become companions of the Messiah if we hold firm or firmly until the end, the reality that we had at the start. You see, the companions of Christ means we share in or we are partakers in Christ. So what Christ has done and what Christ has achieved is ours the moment that we put our faith and trust in Him. David Gusick, a great writer, he says this. This is the whole picture. 
He says that we are partakers in His obedience, partakers in His suffering, partakers in His death, partakers in His resurrection, partakers in His victory, partakers in His plan, partakers in His power, partakers in His ministry of intercession, partakers in His work, partakers in His glory, partakers in His destinies. We are partakers in everything that Christ is, does, ever has been, and ever will be. And so when we get to the moment where we are ready to step out on faith and trust Him. You see, we've got to keep our focus on the end. You see, the moment that we started our faith was the moment that the end became our reality. The moment that we put our faith and trust, that's the reason it says from the beginning, the beginning of our faith, our end was set in stone. Right? It was solid at that point. So the moment that I put my faith and trust in Christ, His death became my death. The moment that I put my faith and trust in, in Jesus Christ, His resurrection became my resurrection, my future reality. The moment that I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ is the moment that my future reality changed forever. And so the place that He is now is my future reality. And it's set in stone. It will never change because the moment of that, that I put my faith and trust in Him, it was sealed. And from the very beginning, and so we don't let this world stop us from focusing on the world that's coming, the world that is in front of us. You see, the people of Israel, they came all the way to the very edge of the promised land. And they looked at the world around them and said, those people are huge. It is too much for us to do. We can't take the next step. Yeah, we've seen God do all this great stuff. We, we trusted God, but that's too much for us. And we're not going to do it. I have a feeling there's some of you sitting here this morning, there's some of you watching online, that you are right here. You are on the very edge of taking that step of faith. And for some of you, it is the very first step of faith. It is the very first step of walking in salvation. It is the very first step of believing that the cross was sufficient, that all of your sins are covered. For some of you, you are on the very edge. You've heard the gospel. You've, you've heard the gospel hundreds of times, and you've just never stepped into it. And for some of you, you are right on the edge this morning. And for some of you, it's not a question of salvation. It's just a question of obedience and a question of whatever it is next in your faith journey, whether it's membership or baptism or, or whatever it is. For some of you, you are right here. And you're standing on the edge. And the promise is right there. And the question this morning is, are you going to trust all the faithfulness that's got you to this point Enough to take that next step. And verse 15 simply kind of repeats verse 7. As it is said today, If you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Today, don't be satisfied. Coming to the edge of God's plan of salvation or God's plan of your life, many of you are right here. And what Moses told his people, what David told his people, what the writer of Hebrews is telling you, don't stop here. Don't be satisfied and think this is as far as you need to go when God says, no, I've got a bigger plan and a greater place for you. This is the reality I want you in. Just step into it. And so today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart as in the day of rebellion. Let's pray together.